All right, everyone, welcome to another No Gear Required podcast. And uh, this week I've been very fortunate to to be able to see some of my friends and people that uh, means a lot to me and uh, means a lot to our country. And uh, I was with me, I have uh, Jay Zabalos, Mike Zabalos, and here with me today I have a gentleman, Dr. Peter Maguire. How are you, sir? Great. Yeah, Great welcome to, be to the here. show. Thank you. Oh, man, so many. I know Peter for, I mean, I... I think I met you a couple years ago when Hickson came to our school for a seminar. Yep. And he was saying, oh, I have uh, this gentleman writing something with me, and we get that in, in, a, in a minute. Let me go first. I really like people to know um, more, especially in the, our jiu-jitsu community that have no idea what important person you are for our country, for America, man, for the things that you, you've been doing for quite some time. I would really like you to to give us some guidance on that, Peter. Dr. Peter, please. Well, thank you. You flatter me. But um, I was born and raised in Los Angeles, California. Um, started training in jiu-jitsu in about 1990. Um, but before that, I, um, I went back east to college, uh, studied at Bard College, and got my Ph.D. at Columbia University. Um, my specialty was the law and theory of war. My great grandfather was a judge at the Nuremberg trials. Um, so my PhD advisor was Brigadier General Telford Taylor, who was the chief prosecutor of the Nuremberg trials. So immediately after getting out of, uh, graduate school, I went to Cambodia to work as a war crimes investigator, um, investigating Khmer Rouge war crimes. Um, between 1975 and 1979, Cambodia's Maoist Khmer Rouge regime killed roughly 2 million out of 10 million people. My investigation centered around a prison called Tool Slang. Roughly 20,000 people went in, 20 people survived. Me and a group of other nonprofit and, and uh, expert photographic archivists uh, found the original negatives. Then I found guards, executioners, survivors, and over about a 10-year period, got them all to talk and, and collecting evidence so that the leaders could be tried. Uh, the UN eventually did try a handful of the Khmer Rouge leaders. Um, I've taught on and off over the years, but teaching has become more difficult I would say that um, America and the world is really undergoing what I would describe as an anti-Socratic revolution in, in education, in that in my era, it was about rigor and excellence, much like jiu-jitsu. We were very, our teachers were very unsparing and not nice. And now we've undergone a revolution so that comfort, the perception of comfort and safety are the highest common denominators, and I don't, I don't think this is is a good thing. I don't think um, I don't teach that way, especially being around the world and see what you see and, and live in other places. You yeah, see, seeing civil war, seeing genocide. Um, that I have always been very aware of China, China's role in the world. China was the main sponsor of the Khmer Rouge. China was very unhappy with the research that I was doing or me and others were doing at the time. Um, and in 2005, I was um, on C-SPAN Book TV and I said, while we're 
so self-involved in America, China and Russia are buying our steel, they're buying our debt, and, and they're laughing at us, you know, and, and Bush at the time was saying, oh, I looked Putin in the eye and he, I can trust him and this and that. Putin's a gangster, you know. Putin's a KGB guy. He, he'll 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 sell you he'll sell you to the Chinese. So, um, <laughs> this is a uh, incredibly odd moment in American history that we're in right now. Um, I uh, I I see how um, the teaching profession, the journalistic profession, these are no longer viable occupations. Um, I see the way the veterans, above all, have been treated. Uh, I counsel veterans through my Fainting Robin Foundation in Wilmington, North Carolina. I try to get them jobs, career counseling, put them into networks of other veterans who uh, many cases are Vietnam vets who have done well and they want to help the younger veterans. Um, and we've had some remarkable successes. Um, I kind of help people where all other channels have failed them. Most recently, we had a woman from California who was murdered in Cambodia. Um, the U.S. State Department told the family that it was an accident. Um, I saw the police reports. It was clearly not an accident. So I activated some of my old associates in Cambodia. We exposed, in fact, that it was a murder and kept constant pressure on the State Department through the media and other channels. And five years later, they finally caught the murderer. And so that's one case. I'm working another case of a professor um, named Michael Shively at Utah Valley University. He taught there 26 years, five-time professor of the year, former head of the faculty senate, um, and a, he failed a student. The student conspired with another professor they accused him of intimidating and threatening. Uh, the, the rival professor even said that she feared that he would shoot her. No evidence to support it whatsoever. He was subjected to roughly an eight-month investigation. He had no lawyer. He had no faculty representative. He um, didn't know who was accusing him, and he didn't know what he was accused of. This is a complete violation of due process and our rights as, as citizens in America. In the end, he began to lose his mind. His wife was a psychiatrist, she recognized it. They took the drug, all, all the pills, guns, everything away from him, and he committed suicide with a nail gun. Presently, that case is in the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals. The family sued the university, and I'm aiding the family in trying to bring some justice for Michael Shively. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, again, I when all other remedies fail, people seem to find me, and then I activate different networks of lawyers and others, and most it, of the- It feels like people went some kind of a rescue, some, and it, you're the last chance they have yeah. to find some justice. Well, and it's but it's interesting. I would say my wife really founded this when a friend of hers, husband left and left her with two kids, a mortgage, and, and she just started calling other, other mothers and other wives and, and raised an incredible amount of money. And, and the biggest thing is when someone believes in you, even if it's just one person, it makes a huge difference in that person's life. So every year I give um, 
an award to an unrecognized scholar who has been incredibly brave and said the right things. I mean, it's disgusting to me that I we have guys, I'll name a few of them, Max Boot, William Crystal, um, Peter Beinhardt, and they they were saying during 9-11, oh, you know, if you don't support the Iraq invasion, you're not a patriot, you're this, you're that. I was speaking to the guys who planned the Iraq invasion. They told me, hey, we got all Saddam's weapons of mass destruction in the first war. That was Mel Goodman, who was once one of the top guys at the CIA. This was not rocket science, you know, and, and so then they do a full uh, 180 and now they're saying, oh, you know, Trump supporters are evil, da, 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 you know, so they're having it both ways and they're still in the public. They're still huge. They paid no price for sending those young Americans to four or five combat tours like the guy you had yesterday yeah. that I met who, you know, no, his legs are never coming back. His arms never coming back. Those scars he'll carry for the rest of his life as the young veterans that I counsel do. So, I don't know, you know, there's consequences in my world, you know, and and keeping my word is very important because in some of the worlds I've operated in, not keeping your word can cost you your credibility, cost you your life, cost you many things. And um, yeah, I, I talk's very cheap today. How, how can people in a way can get involved to, to help you with your foundation? Because it's something that more and more we need. Well, it's funny because, um, of course, it's a nonprofit, blah, blah, blah. And I am probably the world's worst fundraiser because I don't like asking for money. It's very awkward. And uh, But then half the time I go to ask for money and I forget to ask for money. I talk, hey, oh, this happened. And then I leave and, oh, man, I forgot to ask the guy for money. So um, that's it. But I don't, I do it on a very small budget. And, you know, it's mostly my kitchen table is my office. <laughs> because basically, man, if, you, if you're able to help one person, yeah, it's, it's a help. And it's one person that's being saved. Yeah, and it's like a chain reaction, you know. It's and, really and interesting. And as you mentioned, that person will get well. And it's like, no, I can't help somebody else too. And it keeps going like that. Yeah, like we have one young Marine veteran. He came out after four combat tours, PTSD. Um, remarkable guy, a black belt. And uh, you look at him, he looks like, you know, Adonis. And um, he was just having a very difficult time finding his way after the Marines. So I introduced him to another old Marine Vietnam vet who had PTSD. And he said, hey, this, I, I was just like you. But, but what I did was I went and worked uh, as an arborist in the trees because I worked by myself. I took care of my, my saws, like my, I took care of my guns in the Marines, and he rose all the way to be the head of the White House Arborist. So he coached the young Marine. Now the young Marine, a Green Beret, who was a Vietnam veteran who's on my board, got him a job with the county that we live in. Now, four years later, he started his own company. He's doing incredibly well. Um, and I also worked with the Southeast Asian Montagnard community, the Hill Tribes that were our best allies during the Vietnam War. These guys were still fighting the Vietnamese until 1992. The Vietnam War ended in 1975. They never surrendered and they kept attacking the Vietnam, uh, the Vietnamese. 
Um, and then a, a reporter friend of mine was on the border. All of a sudden, these guys come out in old, tattered uniforms. They say, oh, you're the Americans. You brought our weapons and ammunition? He said, no. And, wow. and they were called the Lost Army. Everybody thought they'd been wiped out. So this led to a secret evacuation of Southeast Asian hill tribes to North Carolina, the home of the Green Berets. So the old Green Berets really took responsibility for them and and they've done remarkably well. So I have a, an MMA fighter I coach named Theo Relang. Um, he's now six and zero. He's fighting in the UFC contender series, and he came to America not even speaking English. You know, with the clothes on his back. Um, so uh, these are just amazing people that deserve support. Man, it's and I know you uh, for a little bit of time now, and it's it's very interesting, amazing to me, is because you have a chance to to leave so many different kind of situations that it turns out that you also like to tell that stories writing books yeah and as i could check you have five books already on your on your back right i would like you to go through each one of them or sure. leave, we leave this one for the last okay. one yeah my first book was called law and war and it was very controversial because it was about the nuremberg war crimes trials and the Tokyo War Crimes Trials, the Dachau Trials, all the trials after World War II. And my great-grandfather was a judge at Nuremberg, and the one thing I couldn't figure out was, guys, he sentenced to 30 years, were out in three years. Mm -hmm. And no one could explain it. So I dug and dug and dug, and, and I, that was my PhD dissertation at Columbia University. And I tried to get it published. And the American scholars, no, this didn't happen. McGuire's exaggerating, blah, blah, blah. And, and so I went through like five publishers. And every time they have two reviewers review your book, every time one said, yes, this is correct. One said, no, this is nonsense. So finally, a really famous German historian said, no, this is absolutely correct. It's much worse than McGuire says. And, and the American publisher still wouldn't publish. So then he hired me to work in Germany. And then he introduced me to all the Germans who were involved in releasing the Nazis. So really what happened was in the 1950s, we wanted to rearm Germany to prevent the Soviets from coming into Western Europe. Um, if that was really gonna happen, that's a subject of debate we'll put aside. Um, but the Germans masterfully manipulated the U.S. and said, if you want a German army, you need to release our prisoners of war. And some of these were the worst of the worst, the Einsatz commandos, who were just execution squads. And I'm having a history lesson here yeah. right yeah. now, a lot of things that I don't <laughs> think I learned that at school. But no, I'm... but so then, um, then my second book, Facing Death in Cambodia, is about my experiences in Cambodia. And how I talk about, you know, my generation, like previous generations of Americans went into the OSS or the CIA or the mine went into the human rights and the non-government organizations. And, and it was like the softest generation. I no, it was the softest generation in American history, but you know, we're steel hard compared to what we have today. But in any case, um, I thought it was very, it was just a very strange shift. So I'm in 
you know, I'm in Cambodia, it's a war-torn society, and it's not disarmed. There's still factions ready to go to war, and we're trying to teach them about democracy and human rights and things that are so far ahead of where they are, much like we did in Afghanistan. Women's schools and chicken farms in Iraq and things that until you've got uh, physical security, you can't build on sand. And so it was very odd, you know, and the UN was holding an election that included the Khmer Rouge as a legitimate party. Here's a genocidal regime. And the UN won't even mention the fact that they committed genocide in the final treaties. So this is very odd to me. And so to me, Cambodia was the most outstanding war crime um, of the late 20th century. So if the, if the never again promise we heard after World War II was real, Cambodia shattered it. So for me, I said, man, I got to make sense of this. And um, I never thought that they would try these guys. The trials were pretty bad in the end. Um, and, you know, you, in order to hold a war crimes trial, hold people accountable, you have to have an unconditional surrender. You have to have a complete victory. And most wars don't end like that. Most wars end with, okay, here's a truce. You get this, you get this. So then to say, okay, now you're going to trial or we're going to indict you, you'll never have the peace. So it's a very messy process. And I got to see that messy process up front. I really I butted heads a lot with the United Nations. I found them incredibly idealistic um, and a revolving door between what I call the human rights industry and the United Nations. And again, it's an industry. And if you don't walk there, if you don't say what they want you to say, then you're, you're not part of the team. And I was definitely not part of the team. So... And then my last most recent book um, was called Thai Stick, Surfers, Scammers, and the Untold uh, History of the Marijuana Trade. And that's a lot of my misspent youth growing up in Southern California as a surfer um, and a lifeguard and, and seeing all this stuff and being a participant in some of it as well. So, But I got, I got busted in, when I was 19 and got scared straight. <laughs> scared and, straight, uh, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so and then... Then we got to this book here. Yes. This is, um, how did you end up get to, how was your beginning of your jiu-jitsu training? Um, well, I was, let's see, I trained in, um, you know, Jeet Kune Do type of martial art with John Peretti um, and was a good stand-up fighter, trained a lot with him, learned a lot. Um, and then the, the Garcia brothers, I heard about the Garcia brothers, yeah, there's these. There was, there was a misspelling. Yeah, but no, no, no. Okay. Yeah, there's these Mexicans in the South Bay called the Garcia Brothers. You won't believe. I was like, Mexicans? They, are they? <laughs> do they wear wrestling masks? And uh, and so then, yeah, we heard about the great uh, the Gracies, and then uh, somebody got Gracie in action. This would be eighty nine or not? Yeah, eighty nine, ninety, and and honestly, it was kind of terrifying to me. I spent all this time doing stand-up stuff and and I couldn't wrestle my way out of a paper bag. And and initially I I I learned it to fight against it, you know? And um and I met Hickson, my first teacher at the Pico Academy. A, a wrestler named Todd Irvin brought me in there. And um 
and I really liked Hickson. We got along. We were friends. We talked about a lot of things other than jujitsu. And and of all the great teachers I've had, whether in law or history or whatever else, he was one of the greatest teachers, top three greatest teachers I've ever had in any subject. And he is a truly Socratic teacher. You never really know what you're going to learn. And he says, okay, do this, do this. And he'll find something he doesn't like the way you're doing. And then he's going to build a whole class around that one little thing that you're just doing a little micro adjustment, you know, and he'll, and he'll kind of tweak it. And, um, and so that's was my very beginning with Hickson. And then I would come back uh, from graduate school in the summers and spend them in LA. And then I would train at the Pico Academy in the, in the men's daytime open class. And there were some monsters of that. And that was a, a very different era, you know, and you got hit. A lot of fights, yeah. a lot of... Challenge matches. Jiu-Jitsu still need to be proved uh, as a very effective or the most effective yeah. style of martial art. Uh, a lot of visitors that were not visiting with any... Good intentions. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah, man, go through some some of those well, yeah. <laughs> moments you were there present. It's like, this well, guy came in and challenged my instructor. And yeah. And then, well, I had a pretty interesting thing because I was traveling a lot and then I start going to Southeast Asia in 93. So I was trained, I trained at Helsin's, I trained at Hickson's, I was at Henzo's before Henzo got there. I remember Donner's first week at Henzo's as a white belt. And, um, and so I really got to see a lot of different types of jujitsu mentality, da, da, da. And I, and I, it was very hard for me starting with Hickson because I don't learn in a one, two, three, take the left sleeve, da, da, da. It's much more, I, I kind of have to feel things and, and really under, get my body to understand it. So that, that was the teaching I kind of always went back. You teach similarly, and, and I enjoyed the, the lessons I had with you and Jose. Um, but a lot of it is too robotic, you know, because in, in real fighting, if you're robotic, you know, they're going to go, I, I, I see certain guys I'll train with. I know what they're going to do before they know what they're going to do because they're so predictable. And we were very much both Peretti and Hickson. We were not trained like that. We were trained to be tricky and spontaneous and set traps and, you know, be mean and, you know, it was much tougher. And, uh, you know, you had guys like David Kama and in Mark Eckert and, uh, um, of course, Chris Howder, um, a, a remarkable teacher as well to one of my favorites, Bob Bass. I didn't know as well, you know, some of your guys, your school was great. I went there very early with Peretti and, um, I taught him a lot of classes. Yeah. I remember he used to come here in the Valley. Yeah. And, but right before he got involved with the UFC. Yeah. But your, um, yeah, your schools were great. And I, and I trained with Gene LaBelle a little bit. So Gene always spoke so highly of you guys. And, uh, and you don't really get any higher praise, you know, than Gene LaBelle. Tell me some of the, I don't know, stories or situations that, you were present at Pico School and well, Pico, somebody came yeah. and, and Hickson. Yeah, Pico was funny because, 
you knew if if the Brazilian started speaking Portuguese, someone was in trouble. <laughs> and uh, I had one guy in there that th actually it's in the book. I I didn't say it was me, but it was me. And um, and the guy was big, kind of muscular guy. He said, "Oh yeah, I I'm kickbox or whatever." And uh, and I said, "Oh yeah, it's interesting. I do some of that too." And said, oh, well, I also do, you know, Wing Chun or something. And I said, oh, I do that too. Here, let's do this drill. And he didn't even know what the drill was. And I did it in front of everybody, and so it kind of pissed him off. And then in the first drill, it was like a, just a simple takedown drill. And he took my head and, boom, kneed me in the face and uh, broke my nose again and almost knocked out my front teeth. And I was bleeding all over him. I still took him down and, and made sure I bled on him. And... Uh, Maybe you shouldn't brag about that, but that's the way it was. And um, and then Luis Limao said, Peter, get to the bathroom, clean yourself up. And then the Portuguese started. And then um, and then they just put one fresh guy after another, after another, after another, after another. And that guy limped out of there, and we never saw him again. Another great one was at the Pico Academy, you had to park next door in the Rimen fabric parking lot. And there was like a, a six foot. Do you know the funny thing? They used to have a place right there that used to make t-shirts. Yeah. That's where I used to go to make t-shirts. <laughs> exactly right there. You have the auto body shop <laughs> nearby and it was hard to park in there. Yeah, no showers. No. No no kids class. I think initially no. it was a, a karate school also, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was a traditional karate school with a raised wooden platform, the picture of the master on the wall. So the first time I walk in, I'm going like, this can't be the place. And there's Brazilians sleeping on the mats. I say, what is, what is this? <laughs> and, um, and so, uh, but the one funny one was this, uh, so I'm going to park and, and there's this Jaguar next to where I parked. And this guy jumps over the, the wall and he looks like he'd seen a ghost or something. And he's like a Hollywood type of guy. And, and, he, and he's holding his arm. And he goes, you be careful. That Hicks and Gracie doesn't know his strength. And I, and I said, no, he, he knows his strength very well. You must have done something really <laughs> stupid. And um, so you do something stupid, you paid. And that was the way it was. Henzo's was possibly worse, you know. And, and sometimes you're the only one there. Like some boxers show up and or whatever and you're the only one there and so you never know it might be your day and you didn't really have a choice and if they said how much how much you weigh oh yeah some guys said uh yeah they said 150 and he's gonna come uh, is that is yeah. that okay with you or the worst one was the was the horian versus hickson tournament where it was the two academies so everybody would be held back for their belts and then it was like the World Cup and uh, and and, you know, packed, packed Pico Academy and arms breaking left and right. And I'll never forget Ethan Milius, John Milius, son was really good very early. And he has some guy in his guard and he has the guy's arm and he says, tap, you better tap. And the guy doesn't tap. And next thing you hear is the guy just screaming. And um, yeah, those were tough, was tough so days. And David Kama, uh, you know, someone people really don't know that much about. 
he probably impressed me more than almost anyone both in jiu-jitsu but also as a fighter i mean he was a he was a very impressive fighter and uh he fought some challenges matches at horian's um and yeah i always liked him and was thought he was a very respectable guy how how it was for you especially after so many years and been living those situations at hickson academy and with hickson to get into a point that first i'm amazed that you were able to convince him to actually sit down and talk about yeah and say the stories that for a lot of people there will be the first time oh yeah they will hear that yeah because uh, i read the book and i i read twice it's like is that actually something that i knew but i wasn't sure yeah and you saw the book that he would actually talk about a lot of those things oh yeah no it was how how was <laughs> that for you to be able to pull that out with him and 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 to be sitting down with him for hours days and it, listen him from his own words telling all about that well it's honestly this book's been i've known him gosh so almost 30 years or something and and we've always been friends you know like a lot of people put hickson on a pedestal and and i would come back from cambodia i'd say hickson man there's no way I can go to the ground over there. Like you go to the ground, you're going to get, everything's a mob. So really fighting over there is part football, part boxing, because it's, it's, it's fighting and running. And, and that's the reality. And he said, that's, you're right. He said, yeah, you know, you take those pages from your playbook and throw them away. But I wound up teaching jujitsu in Cambodia to a lot of French military. And, and it was remarkable because um, these were professional dangerous guys, mercenaries and soldiers and stuff. And um, you always had to win the first match very decisively. And you had to leave them with some dignity. You couldn't embarrass them. But then when you taught them and really taught them, you know, they're still to this day some of my best friends who will do anything for me. And so that was the amazing thing about jiu-jitsu. So I taught jiu-jitsu in Australia. I taught it all these places. I was like John the Baptist of jiu-jitsu. <laughs> and I didn't look scary, right? I had long, I once had long, like pretty blonde hair and, and you know, looked like kind of a skinny academic guy. And so I was a really good, like, uh, sleeping dog for jiu-jitsu, you know? And, uh, and then, you, you know, you beat them and then you start to teach them. And then... Um, you know, the, they were so grateful and, and so addicted and they just wanted to train and train. And how was how that um, influence in your life? What Jiu-Jitsu did change on you or you felt what Jiu-Jitsu made a difference for you? I like Jiu-Jitsu because it's very honest and it's um, unlike a lot of other martial arts where they say, oh, I can't do this. It's too dangerous a technique, whatever. In jiu-jitsu, everybody really knows where they stand in the food chain, you know? And um, I'm not that... Uh, today, I have some problems because um, I... Some of the new jiu-jitsu, I know how dangerous it is to you in a, in a real fight. I've always been of the kind of dinosaur school of fighting in jiu-jitsu. But, fight, it, you know, but it's still very young. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so... You know, I, I did a, I, I taught a little seminar at a university and, and I had, you know, and I'm, I'm teaching a, some kid and he's in his 
you know, wearing tights and all this stuff, new stuff. We didn't ever wear that stuff. We wore <laughs> swimming trunks and t-shirts and I still wear swimming trunks and t-shirts. So they just got all the gear on and, and I go, okay, yeah, okay. So show me this. And the guy goes immediately and tries to footlock me. And, and I, before I really even thought about it, I slapped him in the face and I mean, pretty hard, but not that hard. And, and he was like, and I said, that's the counter. <laughs> like you're going to rip my foot when I'm trying to teach you a drill. Well, that's, that's the price of admission. And so that isn't really the way things are today. You know, <laughs> it's kinder, gentler jujitsu. What was the, um, your production time? Like how long did it take you to write the book from the con conceptual to when it was done? Six months. Wow. Really? Six months. I, I write fast. <laughs> well, I mean, not just the writing process, but, but yeah. getting, getting the information and everything. I knew a lot of it. I'd been, I've been talking to Hickson for years and years. There's so much out there about him already. The documentary um, choke and, you know, so there's, he is, he's a funny guy because you don't know really what he's going to tell you on a given day. And you'll think, you know, everything and he'll say, Oh, what about, and you'll say the what? And then he'll tell you this huge piece that makes the other pieces make sense. So he's a funny guy to interview. And, um, and he would, you know, we would talk on the phone. Usually I came out here and did about 10 hours of interviews with him at his house. And then we did once a week on the phone. And then I would kind of identify the holes in the book. And then I'd follow up with the holes. And it was difficult for both of us, you know, because I knew his late son well. I knew I know all his kids well. I know his ex-wife well. And, you know, we had to get into all of it. And it wasn't easy. So it was like I was almost felt like a psychiatrist at times. And, and it can be like that, you know, and I'm good at interviewing people. I've been doing it a long time so I can get people to tell me <laughs> most anything. And so, um, how did that, how did that work with your, um, your previous profession? That was something I was going to ask you, like investigating war crimes yeah. and all. I mean, that's, yeah, that you probably went to some dark areas. Yeah. But I was, I always used sugar, you know, and I, I wasn't like, when 9-11 happened and we got into all the interrogation stuff, I just, I knew in my heart that doesn't work. That eventually everybody breaks from torture and they begin to talk and they say whatever they, you know, whatever they think is going to get the torture to stop. And some of the early black sites um, in the post 9-11 era were in Thailand. So I knew people that were Vietnam era translators and interrogators and they were frustrated and they were saying like, I don't know who is in charge of this, but it's just, this isn't the way the pros do it. And so um, it was a lot of trust building. I had a really good right-hand man in Cambodia um, for years who wound up dying of AIDS. Uh, and, and actually, so my book on war crimes really ends up being about AIDS because I say, oh, accountability, justice, this word that no one can define became much less important to me than like a public health pandemic. I was like, again, you have these things that are these idealistic things that sound great and this, but then you have people dropping like flies, like my old right-hand man sucks in. He 
you know, he found out he was HIV positive, and then he started going to like traditional Cambodian doctors who were giving him like pangolin as an animal blood and really and taking all his money and you know really awful situation and and i couldn't convince him you know so when his life was on the line he went to his values he didn't i say hey we'll get you to bangkok we'll get you the best doctor no way so that um yeah but but in yeah again a lot of it is trust especially um in southeast asia you you have to you just have to keep coming back and keep coming back and not quit and you know they would say oh no you can't do this and i would say oh no of course i know i can't do this but if i were to do this how would i go about doing it <laughs> and then the real negotiations would begin sounds They'd like jujitsu yeah and they would say well you know there is a special handling fee of, of five hundred dollars and I said, well, oh, you mean the, the $50 handling fee? And then it would maybe come out to about 90. And then, you know, and that's how that world works. Vietnam was very different. Vietnam, they didn't play at all. There, the corruption that I was allowed or able to get away with in, um, in, in Cambodia, I couldn't get away with in Vietnam. They were on to me. They had government handler. They had government translator. And I was trying to interview General Jop, their most famous uh, general who was DNBN Phu, the invasion of Saigon and the invasion of Cambodia, but they did not want me to talk to him. But they kept me two weeks every day. Professor McGuire, your prospects for an interview look very good. And then they would say, can you give a lecture today at North American Vietnam Friendship Association on the GATT Treaty? I don't know the first thing about economics. And so I would get the Her run, get the Herald Tribune, and then write down the Herald Tribune article on like a legal pad and give it as a speech. And then, <laughs> and then this went on and on. And it was kind of fun. It was sort of interesting. I'd go in this room and there'd be like 15 government minister guys in identical navy blue suits, white shirts, blue ties, tea, oranges, and cigarettes, chain smoking. And, uh, and so... Finally, towards the end, I was like, you know what? I'm never going to get to talk to this guy, so I might as well make this interesting. And so they say, so when will Vietnam get most favored nation status from America? I said, oh, very, very long, <laughs> long time. <gasps> Why? Well, I said, because of the POW MIA issue, very raw in the minds of Americans. And I say, what do, the, what do the Americans think about the million... Vietnamese PO, MIAs that were bombed and we never, I said, no, Americans think nothing of it. We only think of ourselves. And then they, and then they went, oh man, he's right. <laughs> and so, and then it, then it actually became a pretty fun conversation and, and they learned things about our crazy country and I learned things about theirs. And uh, yeah, I genuinely like people, you know, and I'm interested in people and that's the only way I think you can be a good interviewer. You can get people to talk, you know? And so, um, yeah, that was, that was, and, and some interesting stuff in, in Germany, because when I was working there, um, it turned out the East Germans were huge backers of the Vietnamese. So the East Germans had gone into Cambodia with the Vietnamese, uh, or a, a handful of them, and they had a bunch of, evidence and information that I got from them in Berlin, which was the last place you would ever imagine. 
So the thing that I would say to any scholar, investigator, is that the thing you're looking for is never as good as what you find. But you have to keep an open mind. You can't, if there are some people that are, that think so linearly, they, and there will be this thing right here, and they just, they can't see it. And it's not a fault, it's just kind of a type of brain. Like, I went to the National Archives, they just released these CIA documents about the Cold War, our use of the Nazis, things like that. And as I was looking through them, I kept finding these transcripts of like conversations. And I was saying, what is this? Oh my gosh, what is this? And it turns out, this is how you do intelligence and interrogation. The British did this. And the British intelligence, um, you know, they're at times can be exceptionally good. They took the captured Germans from all theaters, all ranks, and they put them in Kempton Park Raceway, um, like, a, like Hollywood Park. And they would interrogate them very gently. They'd give them cigarettes and chocolate and newspapers. And then they would put them back in their cells and all their cells were bugged. So they recorded all their conversations with each other. And, and some of those conversations are some of the most remarkable discussions of World War II I've ever read about Holocaust, about, you know, every aspect of World War II. And, and you know, again, they got it with sugar. They didn't get it with salt. And, um, and, and, and I never would have found that if I was solely obsessed with what I was looking for. And it was funny because David Irving the Holocaust revisionist, scholar, scholar, I don't know what you call him, but an odd guy, um, he attacked me and said, oh, I found this first because there was an article about me finding these documents. And um, so, yeah, and then I got to testify against him in his trial. So it's, <laughs> uh, it's a, or write an amicus brief. Tell me, tell me about that. Um, I read that letter today right. about honoring... Yeah, Fofo Tetele. Yes, can you yeah. tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Um, the Some describe it as the last battle of the Vietnam War. It was called the Mayaguez Incident. A U.S. container ship was captured by the Khmer Rouge, the Cambodian Maoist rebels, um, and taken to an island off of Cambodia. Um, President Ford, in the wake of us pulling out of Vietnam, being humiliated, uh, said, we have to go show the world, America's back, we're gonna send in the Marines. Well, the problem was they had just evacuated Saigon, just evacuated Phnom Penh, and the US military was threadbare. So they take these young Marines who had never been in combat, hadn't even completed their training, and they fly them to Thailand, and they attack the island at dawn, they're expecting you know, lightly armed Cambodians, maybe 50. Turns out the best soldiers that Khmer Rouge have are there waiting for them in machine gun nests. They immediately shoot down three or four helicopters and, and the commanders and officers aren't able to land. So you have these 18, 19 year old Marines, never been in combat, fighting for their lives. Straight out of it, you know, getting hammered by this 50 caliber machine gun. And finally, this one helicopter is able to land and off walks this Samoan um, Sergeant Fofo Tetele, 
Vietnam veteran, highly respected by all of his uh, soldiers or Marines, sorry, the Marines would be very unhappy if I called them soldiers, I'd, I'd take that back. But uh, so Fofo Tatele is a scout sniper and uh, he says, okay, you know, calm down. You do this, you do this, you do this. Okay, the 50 caliber machine gun, that's the problem. I'm gonna go take care of it. He goes, da 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 da, goes through the jungle, kills them, they're done. Then there's another machine gun nest. Tatele goes, takes care of that, comes back maybe 45 minutes, hour later. He's got AK 47s, he's got canteens, he's got Cambodian hats, cigarettes. And he says, hey, there's a garage sale on the other side of the island, you know, and, and he kind of brings the young Marines back down and, and the worst of it's over. And they say, Sergeant Tatele, are you all right? And he said, yeah, why? They say, you're covered in blood. He said, oh, don't worry, it's not mine. And, uh, and so Tatele is just this incredibly, you know, mythic, heroic figure that had he not been there, I think they would have been overrun and all of them, you know, killed. So the day goes on, they push the Khmer Rouge back to the other side of the island and they get the order, the helicopters are coming, we're taking you off. Well, they, they evacuate the island, but they leave a three-man machine gun team behind. So now they're back on the ships and the radio's going, hey, uh, when's the helicopter coming back to get us? And now the White House, Henry Kissinger and Ford have already planted the story in the New York Times, victory, America is back, America beats the guerrilla. So they've invested so much in this story of American power and blah, blah, blah. They won't allow the Marines, the Navy SEALs, the Air Force pararescuemen to go back. And these guys know that their comrades are still on the island. And, um, and they're haunted by it to this day. Um, and so these guys end up surviving for at least a week. They're captured and killed by the Khmer Rouge. And in the course of my investigations of Khmer Rouge war crimes, I found the guys who captured them and they told me the whole story. Um, so it's kind of an embarrassment for the US. And, and as a result of it being an embarrassment, the young Marines who deserve medals for valor never got them. And so Fofo Tatele is now, I think he's in his 70s, retired, lives in New Mexico. And, you know, this is a guy who was fighting for the United States. He wasn't even a U.S. citizen. He was, uh, he was Western Samoa. So we talk about immigration today and, you know, the borders open more or less. And, you know, I, I want immigrants like Fofo Tatele. And, and Fofo, I don't think he got his citizenship up maybe a decade ago. And then after that, he, he, he worked in the post office. So he was probably the world's most dangerous postman. <laughs> and, uh, and Fofo is just, you know, he uh, deserves the recognition, you know. And, and so I put the package together. I got the eyewitness testimony from the Marines who witnessed what he did and have been lobbying, trying to get a senator to pick up the to case because that's what it requires for him to get it reopened for the Navy Cross or the Congressional Medal, which I think he deserves one of the two. Um, but yeah, I, I believe that that kind of valor should be recognized. You know? Absolutely. Man, what a history lesson I'm having here, sir. <laughs> 
<laughs> now left uh, I think it's the easiest question and I ask that to every single person here who is Peter Maguire I'm still trying to figure that out um I don't know you know I I um I love my work and uh and I'd like to be paid more but you can't have everything and um I get to train whenever I want I get to surf whenever I want I I homeschooled my kids as a result of how bad their education was. So I feel pretty fortunate, really. I'm still married to my wife, I've only been married once. So it's it's been a, a good run so far. Um, but yeah, I, I, uh, yeah I'm, I will work till the day I die. So, and I've worked a little bit in Hollywood and that's enough to make me wanna go back and go back and work in the field in Cambodia. There we go, man. <laughs> And as you guys know, Peter is the, uh, the gentleman who wrote the book here, The Breathe. It's a life in flow, Bal Hickson's life, which uh, I don't know how he was able to get so many <laughs> informations out of Hickson. You know, it's very hard to get. And uh, man, that was a, I went to a travel in a history time here with you, Peter. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, when John Jock said you were coming, I was, that this was my focal point. I'm like, yeah. awesome, this book. But I, yeah, I, I'm going to go back now and just track some of your work because well, you really kind of open. Yeah, but no, the, I don't want to give short shrift to Hickson, but I think what's interesting about it is is that, um, you know, he really opens his kimono. I mean, it's not, uh, and I told him this when we started. Does, does that work like the title of our podcast, No Gi Required? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. open kimono. <laughs> but I said, you know, I said, Hickson, man, I write serious books and I can't write a puffy, fluffy book, you know, that if we're going to do this, we got to do it, you know, and it isn't, a, it isn't going to be easy and it isn't going to be fun. And a lot of it wasn't. And it was, uh, you know, it was hard. I mean, there were days I was dreading what I was going to have to ask him that day. And, and I did, you know, and he answered and, um, and so, yeah, it was, it was, um, we did it really fast. And, and I, it's, it's coming out, yeah, right? Yeah. August. Yeah. I mean, we're a few, but it's his book. It's a few days away from yeah. and but. No, no, but it's really is his book. And that's what I tell him. I said, look, this is your book. And, uh, and you know, I, I interview people, I record it, and then I kind of edit my voice out and I might move things around or clean up the English, but by and large, it's his book, so. Amazing, can't wait. Thank you very much for being here. Oh, thank you, thank Absolute you so much. pleasure, guys, uh, always and a pleasure. And that was a fun trip you thank made you. me go through. Thank you. Thank you, guys, see you guys soon again. This episode of No Gi Required was produced by JJ Grappling Incorporated, engineered by Mike Zavalos, and sponsored by The Art of Marcel Santos Fine Art Gallery. JJM 3.0 Advanced Online Training, Lutigear, Authority Auto, and Body LX 360.